0: And welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty.
1: And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us. Today in the show, we're going to talk a little about fall tillage considerations. If you've got any questions for us about that or anything that's going on in your farm, our number here is 844-44-AG-PHD if you'd like to call in. Again, that number is 844-442-4743. Or you can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. We'll get to the egg PhD mailbag in just a minute, but I, I wanted to say this as we get started. Yesterday on the show, we were talking about harvest update, and I had just said we were kind of just getting going on beans on our farm. We had a full field, end up averaging, and Darren, just, you know, uh, 40 or around, around 40 that was severely hail damaged. And I think that was even better, Darren, than what you had thought it was going to be. I guess right?
2: 35.
1: Okay. So you're right there. I thought you were well there were areas in that I guess field 35 you there told was, me 50 and yeah. yeah yeah I I told See, him 50 without even looking this is
0: the problem it's <laughs> it's Brian's ground and you're the, you're always not not saying Brian but whoever farms the ground is always the worst person to guess how it's going to do because you have an you have a bias and if it's your own stuff well, if you think it's bad you're going to guess oh it's 20 bushel beans while it was 40 and if you're if it's your ground and you think you know it's not so bad, well then you're going to guess fifty or sixty, well,
1: and it's really forty. Okay, let me give you some background on this. So for twenty plus years, maybe even th- twenty five or thirty now, I have guessed at our yields without even spending like let's say a lot of time in the fields on analysis of you know I'm I'm pulling ears and doing pod counts and all this stuff. I don't ever do that, and typically I'm within 5% on yield on corn and beans, just because I know the history. I know how we fertilized. I know what varieties we put in. I know all that background stuff. And I have all this history because I've been on our farm for my whole life. So anyway, I, I literally just guessed because looking at it, I didn't think that the hail was that bad, but it was actually pretty bad. I'll say too. Right across the road, the corn, and I mentioned this yesterday, the corn actually turned out good, didn't turn out so good tonnage-wise. And it's something that we need to talk about more in the future. When we have late-season hail, and this would have happened relatively early August, the corn yield was mostly set. So it didn't damage it for grain, but it did damage it for tonnage. Well, the problem was we still took it for silage and we got, I'm not going to, I can't say ripped off or anything, but I would just say we didn't dollar out as well selling the tons off as what we would have had we taken it for grain. And so in the future, we're either taking that for grain or we're going to have to work out a different deal with the dairy that wants to take the silage off because it was, it didn't work out that well for us financially on the, tonnage for silage compared to how it would have been if we would have taken the whole field for yield. Anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I, I would just say there are a lot of things going on right now. My biggest fear today is that soybean moisture is getting too dry too fast. It's 90 degrees here. And so now we're actually not going to go when we harvest our very next field here this afternoon. We're not going to go to what's technically ready next. We're going to go to actually what's ready last. So we're going to try to find something as wet as possible. Then when it get rain tomorrow afternoon, evening, that'll re-wet everything. And then we're right back to square one and we can start with everything being nice and moist, but harvesting 9 or 10% soybeans doesn't make a lot of sense to me, unless you can put them in the bin and get them re-wetted just by throwing moist air in there. Yep, always different strategies,
0: no doubt about that. you got to think about things, and you got to consider doing things a little bit differently all the time rather than just falling into, well, this is how we've always done it, because, you know what, every year is a little bit different, and if you tweak things just a little bit, you could make more money doing the same
1: amount of work. All right, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's the mailbag! All right,
0: Brian, got a... A harvest report from Matt about his soybeans and field averages, and also corn and field averages. And my first reaction to it is the the yield averages are fantastic. I mean, he knocked it out of the park with yield. At least, a, you know, from what I would compare to, and certainly compared to national averages. But the thing that I that stood out to me, Brian, too, and there's stuff on the backside of those, is when you look at what the what the entire moisture average was for a whole bunch of acres. And when you can hit soybeans, I think his moisture average was about twelve point four or something, his corn average was nineteen point seven. You know, it almost looks like, wow, you just hit you hit a home run on that as well, that you got it out just about what you're probably targeting. What I guess what are your impressions from looking at that? I didn't really see a question that was associated with it.
1: <laughs> That's what I was after. Is there some kind of question with this or just uh, we're taking a look at his yield. So i anyway uh, yep, that's awesome. So thanks for sharing. We appreciate that. And yeah, to think about 77 bushel average soybeans and 225 bushel average corn, uh, especially in a year like this. And now do we know where he farms or do we not know where he farms? Nope. Okay. Because I was going to say around here, I mean, those are close to our averages. Um, we'll see how we turn out compared to the averages this year. Got a little ways to go. But yeah, that stuff looks good.
0: Yeah, way to go, Matt. Nice work. All right, I this one from Sherman, and he said, I'm a small operator. I don't have a vertical tillage tool. I don't have strip-till equipment, and I don't have a chopping corn head for managing residue. So my thoughts are this, and I wonder what your thoughts are. What about one or two passes of light disking where I'm hardly even disturbing the soil, just sizing the residue up and getting a small amount of soil on it? I'm also considering possibly adding a little bit of broadcast urea to assist in the breakdown, What would you think about that as an alternative, uh, since I don't have the tillage tools you often talk about?
1: Yeah, I don't care. I mean, we've done that same type of thing. It's just the vertical till stuff, you create a little bit less compaction. But I don't get that worried about creating compaction with the disc. If you're going light, if you are in corn stalks already, that would be just fine, in my opinion. So. I, I I guess sometimes you just have to look at, hey, I only have these tools on the farm. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish, and you kind of go from there. But we've done exactly what he's talking about for years now. In terms of using the urea to help the residue break down, honestly, the little bit of tillage you do, once you throw that dirt with it, I don't know if it's going to be necessary. I don't know if you're going to see a big advantage to that. It's not going to hurt much, but I, I just don't know if you're going to see Oh, throwing little urea out there made a world of difference in terms of your residue breakdown.
0: We're going to talk about fall tillage considerations on our show today and take your calls and questions as well. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. Back, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio, talking about fall tillage considerations and taking your calls and agronomic questions at eight four four forty four Ag PhD or by email radio at agphd dot com. Start off uh, with Lynn up in Michigan. Lynn, how are you doing? I'm doing
4: good. How are you?
0: Good, good. All right, talk to us about your alfalfa. Here, you got some challenges there.
4: Well, I I uh, seeded it last fall. I thought I had the best alfalfa seeding I'd ever had. Um, Come springtime, I've got a a problem in that buckhorn, and uh, it come in there with a vengeance, and I'm just wondering what, if it's uh, worth trying to spray, and when I might, and what I might use if I could.
0: Okay. Uh, And you said uh, so. What is the weed? Is it a broadleaf weed or is it a a shrub? He's saying buckthorn.
1: Yeah, so buckthorn, Uh, the the, the shrub. It's buckhorn. Oh, gotcha. Oh, I'm sorry.
0: I thought you said buckthorn. I was thinking about a shrub out there, and I thought, wait a second, how did that happen out in your alfalfa field? Okay, so that makes a little bit more sense. Um, All right. So here's one of the challenges with alfalfa. Is it Roundup Ready alfalfa or is it conventional alfalfa? It's conventional. Okay. Uh, we don't have a huge amount of weed control options, and that can be a little bit of a challenge. Did you put any pre-emerge herbicide down, or are you just counting on to, uh, a post-emerge now? You have to be post. Okay. Okay. Um, one thing that we like to do, we like to start off with pre-emerge Eptam treatments. That that works pretty good. A half a gallon of Eptam is uh, somewhere in the 13 to $20 price, and we take out a lot of, well, we take out all the grass and we take out a lot of the broadleaf weeds and that lets our stand get, get pretty thick. What is your seeding rate on the alfalfa, just out of curiosity?
4: Well, actually it ended up a little heavy, but I was probably 20, probably 25 pounds.
0: Okay. 25 pounds and nothing else with it? No oats or anything else? No. Okay. Perfect. All right, and I-,
4: I put it in early last fall, you know, a year ago. Um like I say, I come on, boy, I come on, just beautiful, and then come springtime, I got a big surprise.
0: Yeah, yeah. So with the alfalfa, I, I guess uh, just trying to think about the, the the buckhorn. How thick is it? Is well, it just well, in spots? Up, of hold, the field yeah, or but is hold it up,
1: just a second. When you when you're saying buckhorn, are we talking buckhorn plantain? Is it a plantain or or, yeah. or okay? I just wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page here, talking about the same weed. You basically have a uh, couple of choices. What I would suggest is is running with bucktril at at least a pint to the acre along with a couple ounces of Butyrac. that's 24d b and you know some people will try like a pursuit or raptor but it's not the greatest on the plantain species. And quite frankly, buctril isn't that great either. It's just between that buctril and buterac, that's kind of your combination. That's about the best thing that you can do that that we would know of. So it's not going to be perfect, but at least that would knock it back, hopefully, fairly well. And then I, I think where Darren was going with this was just if you can if you have a relatively thick stand. And it's fertilized well, and all that, hopefully that can choke it out, but it's tough, and that that two four d b or butyrac is a little hard on the alfalfa to begin with, but it's not terrible. So that's probably the direction I would go is trill and just a very, very low rate of butyrac or two four d b along with it.
4: Okay, well, I appreciate it and then would you spray that? i just I just finished uh. You know, like a third cutting here about yep. about a week ago or so. Yep. And it was I do now in the fall or would I wait till the till you know? Well
1: honestly, if it was me, would I consider doing it in the fall? Yeah, I probably would. Um so if we're talking about plantains, there are many of those that are uh just going to be annual weeds. But the problem is this buckhorn plantain is a perennial. So as long as we're all talking about the same weed, the one that I'm talking about, buckhorn plantain, is a perennial. So my point is that's why you absolutely want to hit it now. So hopefully between the herbicide and the winter kill, you'll get most of that under control. And then maybe you'll be in good shape next year. And maybe you won't even have to spray next year. We'll see.
4: Okay. Well, I can that, and I certainly appreciate
1: it. Yeah, no problem. And just in the future, the the much better choice, and that was why it was Darren's first question, is Roundup in Roundup Ready Alfalfa. Now, if you don't want to raise Roundup Ready Alfalfa, that's fine. I'm just saying it, it is a lot better than this Bucktroll and butyrac combination that I'm telling you about, but that, that's about all you can do at this point. Okay. All right.
4: Well, I'll give it a shot, and if not, <laughs> I'll
1: start over. All right. Well, thanks, Lynn. Good luck out there. Thank you. appreciate you guys. Thanks. You bet.
0: Thanks. Yeah, I like that you get a good establishment. I mean, that's one of the things we talk about a lot with alfalfa. If you can get a good crop establishment, uh, that's half the battle. But, but yeah, there are some tough weeds out there, especially when you get some perennial weeds that, that man, they can sure sure creep up and catch you. All right, let's get back to our, our topic of fall tillage considerations. got C.J. Parker with us right now with KCAH. C.J., how are you doing?
5: Oh, not too bad. How are you guys today?
0: Good, good. Everybody's got a different strategy for fall tillage. And I think about, you know, like in our farm, we end up with some manure that we have to get worked in or some fertilizer. We've got residue issues, compaction issues. I'm thinking about seed bed prep already, of course, every time we're out in the field. But where do you want to start, CJ? And what are some of the things we should be thinking about heading into this fall?
5: Well, I think um, what a a lot of customers need to look at is you're exactly right. You know, what are are your goals? Do you got a you got to bury some manure um what what kind of residue do you have out there um, compaction issues um yeah, it, just, it just really depends seems like residues becoming more and more of a topic um these corn stalks and soybean stubble is getting tougher and tougher and um then hearing about tar spot as well too um, where i live here in northwest ohio and talking to other producers across the midwest and um was actually talking to a customer earlier today he plans on um being a little bit more aggressive with his residue um, this fall to uh, to help reduce some of that some of that issue.
0: Yeah, that that is one of the things uh, the disease issues this year that I know we're getting some talk about, and and gosh, I've been hearing from some guys up in Wisconsin about white mold in their soybeans, and man, I'm going to have a lot of sclerotia out there. I might want to do something about that too.
5: Yeah, absolutely, and um, you know it, it seems. You know, a lot of years we're talking about ruts in the field, and I guess the harvest isn't over yet. But for for most of the places I've talked to, you know, things are pretty dry. Um, I don't think we'll be having to fill much many ruts in. But uh, we got to we got to remember the the compaction issues that that may be out there as well too. Um, you know, so we can um, if we do get some rains later on this winter, we can get that uh, get that moisture off the ground, maybe get it to go deeper into that soil profile if it is going to stay dry.
0: You know, we've got areas on the the farm, and uh, we, or I should say, we've had areas in the past where we had some corn that that's blown over in windstorms, and I know there are quite a few guys as as we. We talked to folks all around the country that caught some green snap, had some bad storms, hurricanes, whatnot. Uh, when you've got residue laying every which way and and just a carpet out there on the soil, I think that's a big one too. What did you learn coming out of the the derecho last year with with kind of a widespread area like that, and what have you learned over the years, CJ, when you've got some down corn and, and residue to deal with? Um,
5: yeah, I think uh, one of the one of the main things we've we've learned. Um, the past few years, and, and at K sites we've always kind of talked about, you know, um, working that residue in the top three or four inches of the soil. Um, I know a lot of people think sometimes they need to bury that stuff kind of out of sight, out of mind. But um, if we think about where that fence post rots off at, right there in that top three or four inches where we have that uh, aerobic bacteria, um, breaking that stuff down faster. So deeper isn't always necessarily the best thing to do when you're uh, when you're dealing with residue.
0: Yeah, there, there are just so many considerations, and I like how you started this too, CJ. You just got to have what are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish here? What's the most important on your farm? And that helps you picking that right tool and and getting the job done to your satisfaction. CJ, we're gonna have to talk more as this fall goes on. But thank you so much for being on today. Really appreciate it. Yep. Yep. Thanks a lot, guys. We're talking about fall tillage considerations on the show today. We're also taking your calls and agronomic questions as, as everybody seems to be out in the field here this week with harvest and tillage and everything going on. Our phone lines are open 844-44-AG-PHD and we'll be right back.
2: proactive effective weed resistance management starts in the fall get a clean start for your next season with valor herbicide brands always read and follow label directions
0: every week for more than two decades AgPHD tv has provided agronomic information to make your farm more productive and profitable In each episode, we discuss a wide range of topics covering everything from crop fertility, promoting soil health, improving the environment, pest control, and more. All designed to help you push your farm to higher yield goals and more profitability. Be sure to catch us on Tuesdays and Saturdays on RFD-TV. Check your local listings or visit agphd.com to learn more.
3: Weed control, without the BS. That's more time to apply without wasting time. That's flexible tank mixing that doesn't bend the truth. That's near zero volatility with unmovable principles. With the Enlist weed control system, there is no sacrificing. Get better weed control with no ifs, ands, or buts at Enlist.com. Enlist.com.
0: Listening to PhD Radio, thanks for joining us today. Our phone lines are open throughout the show at 844 44 AgPhD. You can also email us radio at agphd.com. It's a good way to send questions in. One of the questions, Brian, as we get going here on soybeans, TW sent in a note and he said, "I, I planted some soybeans after wheat this year and they, they still had a green look to them, and I was just wondering if they didn't make it before frost and there was still just a little bit of green tinge in the beans. you guys had commented they can yellow up in storage if they're almost um, almost all all the way there. Really enjoy listening to you. I just curious if you had any more comments on that.
1: Well, okay, first of all, right now, this is the weirdest fall, the weirdest soybean harvest that I've seen before where it looks like the stalks after we're done, I mean, they're, well, even when we're out there harvesting, they're grass green. And I'm going, what in the world is going on out here? But the beans are dry. So yeah, it's strange. It's kind of like what's happened with the corn over the last few years, talking about not having premature death and we're keeping things healthier longer, which is leading to higher yields. But anyway, the point here is. I I don't worry so much about what the stock is other than it's going to harvest slower and that kind of thing. But I care about the pods. And and number one, can we get the soybeans out of the pods? And two, are the beans inside the pods fit? If they're wetter, like let's call it 16, 17%, even 15, we're going to put them in a bin and put air on them and that's fine. We'll get them dried down. But if they're getting really dry, then we we actually kind of missed it. We should have been out there just a little bit earlier. We could always throw those in the bin, kind of re-wet them by pumping wetter air into them. But yeah, if there are some green beans that you're harvesting, our old rule of thumb is just this. When you cut that bean or split the bean with your finger and you see inside that it is green, well... If it's green all the way through and green on the inside, it may never change, and you may be dealing with a green bean, and you're going to get docked a little bit if you have too many of those. But if it's yellow on the inside and a little bit green on the outside, then typically that bean does become yellow all the way through. So that's kind of what we've seen over the years, and that's what I'd continue to tell you
0: all right uh we get sam on up in northwest north dakota with some soil test questions and sam are you emailing those soil tests to us i haven't seen them come across yet
3: i'm working on it um <laughs> <as we
0: speak. laughs> uh, I tell you what i if you don't mind we might just put you back on hold for a minute let those samples come through and we can we can take a look or if you think you're uh, within a minute or so of getting them we'll,
1: we'll just start talking through well it too. yeah he had a question on spraying too didn't you sam Yes, I did. Yeah, so go ahead with that.
3: Um, I'm getting to the point of putting my uh, fall valor or panther down for my peas and lentils next year. And with it being so dry and no rain in the forecast, are you guys worried about putting it out and it disappearing before it gets into the ground? Or should I up my rate? Or just run how I normally do?
1: Well, I would run how you normally do. I love it getting herbicide out early when it's a product that's not going to evaporate into the air. So if you're going to throw trifluralin or Eptam or something out there, then sure, that'd be a massive concern. But when it's Valor, no, you got no fears at all. Just throw it out there this fall or early in the spring. I was just talking to a guy about that this morning up in North Dakota, and he said, yeah, my pre's didn't work that well. And I go, well, when did you spray them? Well, in May, and I go, well, there's the problem. I said, if it's super dry and you could have been out there in March, just go out in March. We did that on all of our ground and all our prees worked phenomenally well. So I'm with you completely. I mean, it's, it's dry, and in these dry years we got to look for alternatives to getting our herbicides activated. Well, one alternative is snow. So you put it out there and you're going to get snow on that if nothing else, and you will get activity and it will be working a hundred percent come spring. So I'd be very confident in putting that out there. That's no problem. Now I'm always going to recommend in the fall with Valor going to the four ounce rate. Now you might be running three. I don't know what you've done in the past. I just like bumping it up to four. It doesn't cost much more. We just get so much more residual out of that, and it really hammers those weeds, especially the tough ones like water hemp and kochia.
3: Okay, All I, I've normally ran um, if I spray in August or September, I run with three. Once I cross the October first time frame, I go down to two ounces because we're that much colder and closer to freeze up.
1: Sure. Yep. Uh, yeah, I get that. It just depends on how much residual you want there to be in the spring and also how much you're kind of burning down right now. But yeah, I, I still I, I probably never am going down to two ounces in the fall. I'm at least running three. That's just my recommendation. Obviously, you can do whatever you want to do.
3: Okay. And I just sent over the soil test. I don't know if they come through yet.
1: Okay. Uh, so what did you have specifically for a question on your soil test, or did you want me to just take a look at it in general?
3: Um, so I have two soil tests from the same field. There's an east half and a west half. Okay. The west half always produces about 10 to 20 bushels less than the east half. And okay. I had them soil tested separately to see if, if there's anything why I should be, or why it's producing less than the other half. Um, Nothing stands out to me. So I was going to have you guys see if, Got You it. see something that I don't.
1: Okay, I'll tell you what. Why don't you hang on for us just a minute? We're going to take this other caller here, and then we'll uh, try to get your soil test pulled up. So, uh, or uh, if you want, um, we could just have uh, have Alex take your number, and we could call you back right after this. Uh, right after this break. So, either way, uh, we'll talk to you in just a little bit, Sam.
0: All right, let's head down to uh, Nebraska and continue our tillage discussion along the way. Here we've got Ty sure with us with Luma. Ty, how are you doing today?
7: I'm doing great. How are
0: you guys? Pretty good. Okay, so we were talking about all the different things we're trying to accomplish with tillage, uh, dealing with residue, dealing with compaction, seed bed prep, uh, putting fertilizer in the ground, all those things we can do with our strip-till rig. And I guess my curiosity is, how about in Nebraska? Are guys doing all those things with strip-till, or are they just picking some of those responsibilities and taking care of them?
7: Well, it certainly depends on the operation. Um, we have some guys that go out in the fall and just push strips down, more residue, residue management, seedbed seedbed prep type of operation. Um, I know with the stuff that we do, we always like to get some fertilizer in the ground if we can, get some phosphorus, potassium, some of the more immobile the nutrients, especially in the fall in the soil is kind of our preference. So, really, kind of a kind of widespread on what guys want to accomplish with strip till in the fall, anyway.
0: Now, we get a lot of questions with fall strip till about, should I use coulters? If I've got a coulter set up, will that be fine? Should I use a shank? What do you like to see and what are some of the differences?
7: Well, again, I'd say it comes down to preference of the operation. Obviously, if we're going to be running livestock, uh, typically we see that delayed until spring. Uh, Usually we run a shank in the fall, try to get some compaction breakup if possible. Uh, we do have a neighbor of ours he prefers just running the coulter and he does a two pass he'll run one pass in the fall and then one pass in the spring with his coulter setup um, i think the way it looks in our area right now we're going into a year kind of like last fall where the ground was was hard dry um, and i think we're really going to need that shank to really you know fracture that soil and get that soil worked up really well so um, for us we tend to kind of lean towards going with the shank in the in the fall with the setup we're running here this year, we do have the flexibility, though. If we're on the shank in the fall, we can swap out and run coulters in the spring. So we kind of like that flexibility that we have with those machines.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's really nice when you, you have a little bit of flexibility and you can choose what you're going to do depending on the situation. With uh, with fertilizer prices where they're at, too, we're hearing a lot of guys talking about, man, if I could just put it in the strip, the efficiency should be a lot better. Okay. Did you notice anything in the drought this year on the dryland guys? Did they they really like that?
7: Yeah, we uh, kind of the message we go to guys with is we can't look to reduce that rate. We're getting the, the nutrients right in the strip where the roots are going to get to it. Uh, we don't want to cut that too much. Obviously, we're still shooting for high yields, but if we can get it right in in where the root zone can uh, where the roots can take it up, uh, we're going to be a lot more efficient. And a year like this, you know, looking at the high fertilizer prices, it might not be a bad o- uh, bad option to uh, just kind of put it out there only what the crop needs and not necessarily try to build the soil and getting it in the in strip is a great way
0: of doing that. Yeah, we've sure found that on our farm as well. Uh, We're speaking with Ty Fickenshire with Luma down in Nebraska about strip tillage here. Ty, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Stay safe this fall.
7: All right, you too. Thank you, guys.
0: We'll get back to more of this discussion and your calls and questions right after this. Maintaining your crops is as important now as it's ever been. Howler, a revolutionary fungicide from AgBiome, can help. It provides long-lasting protection from a broad spectrum of foliar and soil diseases that affect crops. Howler is OMRI listed, has multiple modes of action, and has minimal pre-harvest and re-entry intervals. It's flexible, easy to use, and is available right now. Visit agbiome.com forward slash Howler to learn more.
2: Get a clean start for your next season with Valor Herbicide Brands. Always read and follow label directions.
6: When you're ready to harvest more corn, Drago is ready to help. The proven Drago Series 2 cornhead with automatic self-adjusting deck plates beats competitive brands for harvest efficiency. And the new Drago GT features integrated deck plate ear shocks for unsurpassed yield capture. Harvest more. Return more. With a Drago cornhead. For more information on Drago Cornheads, go to dragotech.com. That's DragoTec.com.
0: Ag PhD has one mission, to give you the knowledge you need to make your farm more successful. That's why every issue of the Ag PhD Insider Magazine features crop fertility and pest management tips, insights into the world's highest yielding farmers, updates and results from our in-field research trials, as well as the latest agronomy information from Brian and Darren Hefty. We put it all in one place so you can make your farm more productive and profitable. Subscribe to the AgPHD Insider at agphdinsider.com.
1: Nothing waits for a farmer. Not the weather, the banker, the crops. It's never at a farmer's convenience. So when it comes to crop protection savings programs, how come they get to ask you to wait for a rebate? Don't wait for rebates. Get the True Choice offer from Corteva AgriScience for instant upfront savings on crop protection products. Ask your local Pioneer sales representative or your crop protection retailer about the True Choice offer from Corteva. But don't wait.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're talking about fall tillage considerations, and this topic got brought up. What about some of the disease problems that were out there this year? Could fall tillage potentially help lessen our problem with those diseases going forward? So we got our friend Darren Mueller on with Iowa State to talk about that a little bit. Darren, thanks for joining us.
6: You bet. How are you guys?
0: Well, pretty good. Pretty good. I want to have a good answer though to help folks out and and some of these diseases like tar spot, for example, just hasn't been around all that long and we haven't had to face it yet on our own farm. I don't, I'm not wishing for that and I'm not, I'm not trying to jinx anything here, but want to learn a little bit more about it because some guys had it really bad this year. Is this something where tillage could help us reduce that or how could we lessen our potential for having a tar spot problem next year?
6: You bet. Um, I would say you can look at tar spot, similar to some of the other foliar diseases on corn or soybean or wheat, that survive in the residue. And tillage should work um, a, a little bit. And then I, I'm sort of using air quotes over here, which you can't see, because there's there's a caveat. If there's enough if there's enough inoculum in that area, local tillage in a field. Might reduce the amount of inoculum in that field, but if the field across the street doesn't have it, or you know, a, a couple miles away, uh, you know, these any, anything that's an airborne pathogen can move, and so um, it might slow down that or, or might slow down that early flush of of disease in that particular field. But if it's a great year, like a lot of people experienced this year, or 2018 is another example. And there's some inoculum in the area. That it'll it'll overwhelm whatever effect that t- local tillage will have.
0: All right. So we've got a lot of no tillers out there too. For the no till guys, the question they're giving is: What if we put something out there to break that residue down faster? Can we at least lessen how much tar spots going to carry over till next year?
6: Ah oh, man. I, I would say I would have the. I know I, know I would have it's the tough. same answer. Like it's like you're you're adding an input, and uh, I would say overall, if the conditions are are decent for disease development, it's really not going to do a lot. Like it, uh, but then, you know, it's it's the real world. It's biology, and you you can probably point an example of breaking down that residue, and then the next year is really sort of marginal for disease development and, and maybe it doesn't make a difference and so um, you know it's it's, it's this the plant pathology is sort of crappy answer to everything it's, it depends <laughs> on the weather you know? yeah yeah absolutely um, and and it, and this it, and sort of it falls into this that that category as well that really there's there's a biology and a reason we say it depends on the weather and if it's if it's with tar spot what we've seen is that man that pathogen can really explode so just sort of shuffling the chairs on on the Titanic is not going to do a lot if if it's good um, conditions for disease development the next year.
0: Okay that's fair enough that's fair enough so if there's a disease you want to talk about Darren that that I haven't mentioned go for it but otherwise I was going to ask you another tar spot question about uh, when when we look at that one what did you learn this year did you see much of it in Iowa and and what would you suggest for managing going forward?
6: Yeah, so we did see it in Iowa, but thankfully it's you know, we we well, maybe not thankfully for everyone, but we we were pretty dry here in Iowa, like you know. Um, and I think that slowed down the spread of the amount of inoculum, tar spot inoculum that's out there. Uh eastern Iowa certainly has some counties, you know, Alamake and sort of the, the far east that man, there's there's a there's a lot of tar spot out there. And and so what I I think the main lessons I learned at least going again moving across Iowa is that inoculum level is going to play a role and so once it once it gets established and it really starts to take off you are managing that completely differently than the people that are just sort of on the fringes of it and sort of looking on the outside looking in Um, the other lesson I See, is that fungicide timing is really an issue? We had a lot of people asking why the heck they're seeing so much tar spot in their field, even though they had, you know, they went out and sprayed. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There's tar spot has a a latent period. You know, for those that aren't familiar with that, that means that the pathogen infects, and then it takes about 10 to 14, maybe a little bit more days before that the, the sign of the pathogen or the disease is there. And so you, and while some fungicides are curative, again, using air quotes, that only, that only helps in those first couple of days. And so if if you hypothetically had tar spot infection happen 10 days ago, and and you still don't see it, and you go out and spray a fungicide, that fungicide is not going to do a lot as far as stopping that pathogen. And then, and then, you know, you get disease. And so, um, timing was a, was a really big thing this year. Uh, some fungicides for the most part, fungicides work pretty well against this disease, but if you put it out at the wrong timing, um, it, it doesn't look as good.
0: Yeah. I also heard from farmers through the season saying that two and three mode of action products looked better than the, the single mode of action products, uh, at least as far as disease spread and and just how much infection they had. Well, I guess we'll see when the yield data comes in, but at least earlier yeah. this year it sounded like that looked good. Well, I really appreciate the update, Darren. Again, we're talking with Darren Mueller here with Iowa State. Uh, look forward to uh, to catching up with you at the winter meetings this year, Darren.
6: You bet. Hopefully we'll see you. All
0: right. Sounds good. Let's head back up to northwest North Dakota. Got Sam on with us, and we got a couple of soil tests from Sam, and I uh, just wanted to talk. He had a challenge just to, just to get catch everybody back up. He, he split a field. He said the west half of the field, typically 10 or 20 bushels less than the east half, and kind of wanted to figure out what was going on. And
1: then, of course, uh, if we can increase yields on both sides of the field, that would be fantastic. Okay, Sam, I got a couple of questions for you. First of all, how big is this field, roughly?
3: It's uh, 240 acres tillable.
1: Okay, and we have one sample from each side. How were those samples pulled? Did you, I, I mean, where were they pulled in each side?
3: Uh, they were composited uh, sampled, so it was an average of each side.
1: Okay, so... We talk all the time here on the show. We struggle with the whole composite testing thing because it's only going to show us the average. And when I look at the average, the only thing I can come up with on these differences is your east side looks slightly lighter than your west side. And knowing uh, northwest North Dakota, I I mean, that almost seems to me like it should be a disadvantage, but... Over the last few years, we've had some slightly wetter than normal years. So maybe that had something to do with it. But this is not like super heavy ground. We're talking 14 CEC versus 16. And I don't really see a lot of differences other than your east side has a little bit higher base saturation K and stuff. But what, and and I know this is more work and I know it costs a little more money. But I mean, honestly, I'd like to see some some spots so let's put it this way if you've got a yield well I'll just ask you I assume you have a yield monitor in your combine right yes okay so if nothing else well here's here's normally what I suggest to guys is at least take what we like doing one acre grids but let's say you did even five acre grids out on each side then we'd have a much better idea of some of the good and bad things rather than looking at the average The other thing I was going to say is with your yield monitor, what you could do is pull GPS points, and we really like this, uh, even just in a couple spots, let's say you didn't want to sample the whole field, but you take a high yielding spot on the east side and a low yielding spot on the east side, a high yielding spot on the west side and a low yielding spot on the west side. So you have four samples. And when you when you take those spots, you mark a GPS spot, you drive out there with the vehicle, you, you do like eight or 12 soil cores within a 10 foot radius of your GPS spot and call it good. That way we have a better idea of what's really going on in the good spots and the bad spots. That's what I'd rather see because otherwise I'm with you. I don't identify anything that I say, oh, this is night and day difference to tell me I should have 10 bushels or 20 bushels more on one side versus the other.
3: Yep, I agree. I nothing stands out so yeah okay i got some more work to do then
1: (laughs) yep all right well let us know uh, when if and if you want to send more samples to us anytime we're more than happy to take a look at them and hopefully we can figure something out because yeah there's there's obviously something going on if one side's consistently better than the other okay all right sounds good thank you guys be safe have a safe harvest yep same to you thank you
0: We'll be right back with more AG PhD radio right after
6: this.
1: Fill once, plant all day.
6: When it comes to commanding herbicide formulations you know new farm New Farm brings you panther SC an animal when it comes to
0: speed of control and long residual on a broad spectrum of tough broadleaf weeds like mare's tail, palmer amaranth and water hemp. And did we mention convenience? Panther
6: SC works in pre-plant pre-emerge and post-harvest systems and keeps your rotation options open New farm and Panther SC here to help.
0: welcome back you're listening to ag phd radio we were talking about fall tillage considerations on today's program but we've gotten a lot of questions in here for the ag phd mailbag I'm going to dive back into one from tom he said guys i got a couple of questions for you today first one i've noticed in a field recently the outside row of soybeans still very green and the rest of the field is ready to harvest why would the outside row stay green longer
1: It's an excellent question. I've noticed that quite often over the years as well. I don't know if I have a great answer for you on that. Is there anything that you know, Darren?
0: But there's so many things that could happen with that outside edge of the field that could be slightly different. And sometimes we see that outside edge get a slow start and then it stays green a little bit longer or it has some additional stress on the
1: outside. There's often in the outside row, if you were to test that outside row, you will find higher organic matter levels out there than you'll find in the rest of the field. If you also check yield on that one row, you will often find it to be higher in terms of yield. Now, another thing that could happen is it's right next to grass. And when there's green grass next to it, I don't know what impact that has on it, but it, it must be something. Because, yes, I've noticed that a little bit over the years. Not all the time, but occasionally we do see that. I also worry a little bit about insect damage and some of those things right on that that exterior row. But, no, I, I don't know that there's necessarily one thing that I can pinpoint that to. So, just have to do a little field investigation and, and try to figure it out there. But... I mean, ultimately, I don't know if it makes a whole lot of difference. I don't know if it's going to change your management really any.
0: All right. Tom's got a second question then. He said, I have noticed the headlands and cornfields are sometimes harvested long before the rest of the field. Yep. Is the main purpose with this to help the long rows dry down or is there something else?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I, that, that, again, a lot of reasons. What a lot of people will do, even us sometimes, is rather than go around and check all our fields and, and walk through them and pull ears and everything else, we just send the combine out there. And we say, yeah, let's go test that one, see if we think it's fit. And so, obviously, we have to do the headlands, or we call them end rows. We'll take a pass or two off the field, so that's a lot of times the reason why we do it. To do any more than that, sometimes... People have needs for corn. They have to fill a contract. They have livestock to feed, something like that. So they want to get something off early. Uh, just getting even started with a grain dryer. You want to get started right away, have something to run through. So lots of reasons why people could do it. Just really depends on the situation.
0: All right. Thanks for the questions. We appreciate that one. Got this one from Tom, another different Tom. Uh, he said, we got 51 inches of annual rain. Crazy humidity uh, and lots of heat. We had corn growing so fast you could about hear it. However, with our wheat, we had some issues with so much humidity. We had some sprouting before we could even get the wheat off.
1: Uh, and just more of a comment than anything else. And Tom, it's not as much the humidity. I think it's just it's rain, and you can't get back out there. And then the rain gets caught in the in those heads sometimes. And yes, stuff can sprout we have that with corn some sometimes too in the really, really wet years. So it's it's more rainfall than humidity. But anyway, go ahead.
0: Well it was just it was just more of a comment from him, oh, just okay. that that sometimes the weather that's good for one crop is it makes it a challenge with other crops. And you know, it it's timing on a lot of this stuff too. And that's what's kind of interesting is we get to travel around and talk to, to growers who are doing things a little bit different. Well, why are you planting a couple of weeks before everybody else? Or why are you waiting to plant until a couple of weeks after? Or picking a different maturity that's not common for your area. And some guys have kind of figured out the timing on things that, you know, this time of year we normally have more rainfall or we have more humidity and all those kinds of things that go with it. That, that we're trying to, to beat that or to, to time it so we'll be ready to harvest after. After that man just talk to the guys raising hay in your area. When are you going to cut that hay, and how are you going to going to get around that? It gets to be a little bit tricky. There's no no doubt about that. Um, you know, and speaking about the timing, Brian, the, the fall tillage discussion we've been having today. Well, I think the timing might be right in a lot of these areas. I've been traveling around Minnesota yesterday. Growers there were saying, Man, we caught some rains. It was too late to really help the crowd or the crop, but at least it's gonna be a little bit softer to do some tillage out there. It was yeah. so
1: hard that we ran into that last fall where we had no rain in four months and we're trying to do tillage. Well, that, that doesn't work the best. It's really hard on stuff, poles hard and wears stuff out much faster got Kevin
0: Kimberly on right now he's a consultant down in the state of Iowa but of course he, he reaches out into the neighboring states as well Kevin thanks for joining us
8: how you doing today
0: well pretty good okay so Iowa not exactly a, a super wet year for a lot of the areas around Iowa you running into any challenges with some of the fall tillage recommendations that you're making out there
8: well, as you know, I travel eight states, so people have moisture and people don't have moisture, and it's a little mixed bag. Uh, one thing where, um, where you're drier, you want to run narrower points on tillage, and if your ground's not level, you want to level your ground later. Um uh, before you finish up, so it's a level for uh, next spring. Um, this spring a lot of people had rough tillage and and uh, you had a lot of rootless corn because of it and couldn't get corn into moisture because those valleys were dry, and dry in that. And we could run into the same thing again.
0: Well, I think the other thing a lot of guys talk about when you're talking about rough tillage, we've got these hard clumps of dirt that we never got the rain and the moisture to, to ever break those down. If you create those hard lumps out there in the fall, what are the odds they're going to be mellow and, uh, and easy to crumble in the spring?
8: Well, in the spring, it's a problem because you'll kick those in the holes and you'll have drier dirt. Um, as you guys well know, I do a lot of work uh, kind of around your surrounding area. Last year in Mitchell, we leveled ground with field cultivators uh, in December. And we had a beautiful stand and you have the same soil density to plant into. Soil density is very important. And if you're running strip till, you need to make sure And uh, depth and colders can make a big difference along with knives this year. It did last year.
0: One of the one of the challenges we've had this year too is just getting parts. Are, are you seeing that loosen up at all with some of the tillage implements, or or guys pretty much going to have to run with what they've got?
8: Well, there's still some opportunities. We drove clear to, uh out to um, Idaho, right on the Washington border. Rnh machine and they designed ripper points for us, so we're we had them made for eight seventies and some chisels to uh, help the ground move better so we don't blow it apart. I'm not a big wind guy because you blow these holes and and uh, a lot of that showed up to be a disaster this year.
0: Yeah, it sure did. And then you're the guy that gets the call about how do I make my planter work better? If you set the table and you set it very poorly with the fall tillage, uh, it's going to be tough to make that planter work great.
8: It is. And you guys probably remember I've always taught everything's a marriage to your planner and it starts in the fall. Yeah. And you know, don't be afraid to make that extra trip later and level that ground off because it will seal over and, and you'll have great planting conditions next year, even dry.
0: Yeah, that's that's an important tip, and, and I know Kevin had mentioned Mitchell, South Dakota doing this. For, for our listeners who may not be aware of where Mitchell's at, it's pretty cold in Mitchell, South Dakota in December, but it was dry, and you're able to, to sneak back across that field, level things up without without creating a mess out there, for sure.
8: Yeah, and we, we did that by Pipestone and Flandrew last year also, and of course, we did that in every state, and I'm really, you know, we consult in eight states, so we're, we're out there every day. We're in fields today, in fact. So,
0: Yeah, a little nicer today than it, than it would be in December for sure, but lots of yep. stuff going on out there. And, and as you mentioned, variable conditions across the, the upper Midwest. We're talking with Kevin Kimberly. He consults uh, over eight states based out of the state of Iowa. Kevin, uh, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today. Look forward to talking to you again soon.
8: Absolutely. You guys have a great week and enjoy the fall.
0: You bet. Yeah, there's so much going on out there in the fields right now. And I, one thing I like about what Kevin does, he just pays attention to those details and and watches really close and field-to-field field isn't isn't afraid to to make a change and say, you know what, you know you've been using this kind of tool. We need to change things up here to get better results. Uh, it, it certainly helps, uh, helps growers, and it's a good tip for all of us, uh, even if we aren't working with a consultant, to just – watch really close on our own farms as we're getting out there doing that fall tillage that we're getting the job done that we're trying to get done thanks for listening to our show today be sure to join us again each weekday for more ag phd radio